you know, sometimes bump up against what people think um, you shouldn't do and go with what is feeling good to you and bringing you joy and, you know, really highlighting the things that matter to you. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins. I'm looking at our lovely, super genius, Dr. Nemanje Bumpus. Nemanje, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me, Kim. Well, friends, um, Nemanje Bumpus is one of these selfless people who I remember when I first came to Hopkins nine years ago, I started these groups, basic research investigator groups, clinical research investigator groups. And when I asked Dr. Bumpus, because of um, her reputation preceded her, if she would come and talk to our group about how to get funded and get the R01, she was yes, 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 yes. And she gave so much great advice to our early career faculty. And lo and behold, here and I'm now looking at Dr. Bumpus, who is a professor and an endowed chair, the director of pharmacology and molecular sciences here at Hopkins. Um, Nemanje does stuff I don't come close to understanding, <laughs> drug metabolism, mass spectrometry, blah, 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 all this um, crazy smart stuff that is beyond um, my capacity to understand. But Dr. Bumpus, you are here today to talk about something that is so important and so many listeners will love. That is how to navigate the junior faculty years. I know people are going to be loving this. So let me just please um, ask you to clarify or say anything more about your role here at Hopkins, your maybe your journey here, what you're doing, and then just kind of lead us off into how do we navigate these important formative years? Yeah, so I'm a so-called basic scientist. Um, so I run a laboratory, and that's primarily what we do, and we're really interested in pharmacology and biochemistry and those types of things. Um, and I've been here for almost 12 years. I came here straight out of my postdoc as an assistant professor, had done an international faculty search and just found such a connection here for my research. There'd be lots of collaborators and um, just some interest in the types of things that I was doing. And as I've been here, I've increasingly taken on various leadership roles. I had a graduate student and diversity focused leadership role and then kind of a research basic science in general around medical school, especially focusing on folks in clinical departments. And now I'm a department chair, or as we call it here, department director. Um, and it's been a quick path in many ways, but I think that I've tried to be very systematic, I guess, at each stage. And so it would be great. And I love to have the opportunity to talk with folks about kind of what I've done and what I've learned. There are many ways to do it. <laughs> it really comes down to you know, your individual interests and goals and just finding the best path that works for you. Thank you. I would love it. I, I know so many faculty members, you know, that the challenge that we see, you know, Namaji, as you know, through the Office of Faculty Development, we do all these leadership programs and seminars and workshops is, is that when we come into our first real career job placement, we're in that mode of, you know, hammering through the required checklist for the MD, for the PhD, the dissertation, the postdoc, the residency, the fellowship, the internship, all those kind of things that we check, 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 check. And then we get there and we're like, okay, now I'm here. And a lot of early career faculty members kind of stand there and go, well, now who's going to tell me what to do? I know I got to just do research and 
get grants and see patients and build my clinical practice. And, but a lot of people, I think, you know, we kind of get a little bit of that frozen kind of thing of, well, is somebody going to tell me what I'm supposed to do? How do I figure out what I'm going to do? And how do I navigate this, this huge culture? And I don't know anybody and I don't want to make a mistake. And so I can't wait to hear all the juicy advice you're going to give us. Yeah. So I think definitely with that kind of getting started, a couple of things. One, you know, we talk about mentors, definitely a team of mentors, um, a diverse group of folks. So it's great, you know, to have your department chair and build a relationship with that person, you know, as you should, but also looking outside and thinking about people across career stages. So certainly senior, very accomplished people. Um, if there's a leadership role that you think at one day could feel interesting, maybe it's someone in a leadership role who's not, you know, a scientist or a physician like you are, maybe who has been, um, you know, on kind of that leadership track for a long time and is focused more in that area. And also people, you know, forget sometimes near peers or even just peer group that it's important to build those relationships with the people who will be your colleagues, you know, hopefully for decades and where you can support each other and get feedback on the way that things are working, get feedback on who the really supportive senior faculty are, what the good programming and resources are. So I think you want to definitely make connections with people that have been there and been successful, but make sure that you get to know people in your peer group as well. You may have to look outside of your department. You know, maybe you're the most junior person in your department or division, and that's fine. You certainly can reach out to folks in other places. Um, you know, when you go to orientation, you can make friends there. There are people I met at orientation. We exchanged information, have remained friends. That's very useful. And making sure even, you know, in those early stages, when you're hearing from, you know, various, the faculty development office, or, you know, you're hearing from the different research offices, you can reach out to those people and, you know, just schedule time to talk to them. People really do like to meet junior faculty and want to help junior faculty. And so you will find that no matter how busy you think this person is, most often they will make time to see you and to talk to you. And it's really good for people to know who you are and to get those perspectives. But one thing I think that's been really, you know, central for me, and I try to always remember, you're going to get a lot of advice, but you definitely still need to think about forming and following your own vision for yourself and your career, because you'll find people, you know, they know you some, they know what you've done. They don't fully understand your aspirations and all of your abilities. And sometimes they will form opinions, you know, based on their limited knowledge of what they think you're capable of or where they think you'd make the best contribution. At every stage, I've always had people say that they didn't think I'd make it to, you know, the dean's office. They didn't think I'd make it to a department chair or maybe I would, but it'd be 30 years from now or whatever it is. And I always had to stay true to the things I knew that I wanted to be able to do and accomplish to really contribute to the academic community and to my institution and identify mentors who would be honest with me, but would also be supportive of the things that I knew that I really wanted to do. So, you know, that was my research and scholarship, certainly, and also the contributions I wanted to make as a leader, identifying people that even if it's not the path they took, that we're going to be constructive about helping me get there and figuring out the way to get there, as opposed to telling me, oh, this doesn't happen because it's never happened before. So being true to your vision, even if it seems weird to other people, and then identifying people that are going to constructively help you identify the steps to get where you want to go. Oh, Namanji, that's so, uh, thank you so much for that honesty and just kind of laying it all open there because so many 
of us have non-traditional paths. And so many faculty members say, well, I'm not quite like anybody else. And I think, and I say, you're right, you're not. And there's some little bit of sometimes feeling, I feel like faculty members feel that they are somehow, there's, they're not quite right because they don't look like everybody else or they don't have the same thoughts or aspirations. So reminding ourselves and each other that, listen, you do you. Certainly there are parameters and there are boundaries and there are the lanes and at the bowling alley to make sure we don't go in the gutter. There, there's certainly, but those confidence intervals can be broader than we think. And I love how you said, you know, a little bit of grace and mercy to our, to our mentors who would maybe do a quick run through of the CV or know us by what we do in the lab or in the clinic. But if we're not being honest and, and sharing, you know, well, Dr. Bumpus, I like this, that, and the other. But when I start talking to you and I'm honest that but my heart soars when I'm teaching and then my eyes light up and I get animated that if I don't share that with you, you then you don't see that part of me. So, of course, you're only going to mentor me for the things that you see. Your lens is only like in front of you. So I think it goes both ways. We have to be honest with our mentors and our peers and do the hard work of figuring out, well, what is it I do I want to do? And stop trying to live in some mold that somebody says we should live in and not being ashamed of the fact that we're different. I'm a sociologist for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. A sociologist as a dean in the School of Medicine at Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Everybody told me when I was younger, you'll never do anything with that degree. What are you going to do with that degree? Exactly. There's a lot of that because people are coming from, you know, their own experience of what they've seen or have never seen their own biases or even their own, you know, trepidation. Would I be able to do it? Would I be able to break that mold? And I think, you know, people do the best they can and certainly everyone means well. Um, But I think that, you know, part of your journey is really identifying what, like you said, brings you joy, where you want to contribute and then letting that really guide you and feeling okay that maybe it is different. Um, You know, there have been decisions that I've made all along that people have said, um, you know, that's never going to get you anywhere. When I was an assistant professor, I became a member of an NIH study section, you know, where we're reviewing grants. Everyone says, don't do that as an assistant professor. And maybe it's not right for everyone. But for me, it was something I really enjoyed. It made me better, but also I was just happy in that setting of spending a whole day talking about science with people. And so it felt like this is something that brings me personally joy. So it's worth doing. And so even though people said, but it's not going to get you where it's not, it was about filling me up. And I think it did get me somewhere because I think it helped hone not only my skills as far as thinking about, okay, how do you write grant, but how do I communicate my, how can I persuasively communicate my ideas with my peers or even people who are far senior to me, developing my leadership skills. I became chair of that um, section at a relatively young career stage. And I think that all of that has helped build me to where I am as far as leading my lab, mentoring my students, giving advice to junior faculty, leading an apartment, all of those things come together. Everyone can't always see it, but you have to really be willing, as I said, to kind of, you know, sometimes bump up against what people think um, you shouldn't do and go with what is feeling good to you and bringing you joy and, you know, really highlighting the things that matter to you. Good. Thank you. I love it. Um, kind of 
amplify when you were talking about near mentor, near peers, near peers that I've, I've never heard that, that phrase, but it made me think of even outside of the institution at the professional societies, um, peers and colleagues and networking and forcing yourself if it's not in your nature to network and build relationships with peers at other institutions, because they may be just a tick above you in the, their career maybe getting promoted just a minute ahead of you. And they could be perhaps writing your letters of recommendation. Yes. And then we also learn not only how they succeed, but how they fail. And then yes. we learn, oh my gosh, I got to make sure I don't ever do that. So yes. that's where it's safe to me to also learn lessons from my peers. But yeah, I love that near peer thing. So we talk about team of mentors and diverse mentoring and getting advice, but grounding that advice and filtering it through our vision. Uh, anything else you'd like to share about? Well, you also, you just brought up a great point, the external relationship building. So that is also critical. So, you know, for your promotion, I mean, obviously one thing, they're going to ask for these external letters and you need people in your area who can say that they know your work or even that they've seen you give talks that they know you. So scientific society, very important. So I say get engaged. Certainly you should be a member of the societies that are important in your field, but volunteer for a committee. So for instance, emailing you know the president or the executive director, just saying, this is who I am. I'd really like to get involved. Societies always need volunteers for things. Mm -hmm. And that really helps you start to get embedded in your field. You get this broader support network for when you know times get hard. And you also get that visibility, as I mentioned. So whether it's a letters for promotion, whether you're going for funding, like going to get a grant funded, now you've more people in your field who know who you are. They've worked with you. They have you know positive feelings. We're human beings. Like, Certainly your grant review is about the science, but if people has a po have a positive feeling about you, it only helps. So, um, and so really building those relationships is important. One thing that I did to try to get to know some of the very senior people in my area of research was invite them to give seminars. Mm -hmm. I think people don't realize how strategic you can be about your seminar and your seminar invitation. So Every department, you know, or division will have a seminar series and they're looking for people or grand rounds, you know, whatever it's called at your institution or your department. And they're always looking for speakers. So you volunteering to host someone is a great opportunity because now this is someone you get to spend time with. So if it's some, you know, luminary in your field that you really would love to just sit down and talk with about your work and your ideas, this is an opportunity to do that where you invite this person, they come. People most often will say yes when they're invited by junior faculty. And you really get an opportunity to spend time with them and talk to them. There are so many leaders in my field that I got to know through those visits. And not only were they future letter writers or people to collaborate on grants, just people to give me feedback when I'm trying to navigate things and figure out what I'm doing. So I think that the seminar piece is something that people don't tap enough that really um, can be important in helping to move you forward. It's such a simple thing, but it can go a long way. Well, Namanje, you're saying something that I, I, when I was early career, I would never would have thought that it would have been my, um, privilege that I would have the power to do that. First of all, invite somebody who was like famous in my field. And then I guess I would have thought, well, the don't the leaders do that? The directors, the department chair people do that? Who am I to do something so high level as to invite somebody famous? And then furthermore, why would this famous person care about me and nobody in my field? So you just taught me two important things 
uh, that we have to realize, my gosh, um, you're, you're taking a burden sometimes off of other people's backs. If you can help fill the calendars yes. for these, for these opportunities at our home institutions. And if it's somebody more junior, you're helping them mm-hmm. fill their CV with invited opportunities. Mm-hmm. And then there's possibly an exchange, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a quid pro quo, if you invite them, say, may I in turn, I'd love the opportunity to come to your institution. And I love that strategic component of, because you're hosting, you get to back in the old days, pick them up from the airport. If you, you, know, you take them to breakfast, you take them to lunch, you walk them down the hallways, you're bending their ear and wow, what talk about free coaching and mentoring and advice. And yeah, that is genius. Yeah. And you foster those relationships. So you know, you invite them, you spend that time with them, you have a conversation, you make sure the next time of the conference, now you know them. Email them, do you like to have coffee or tea or lunch, you know, some at some time. When you publish the paper, you were telling them about the work you were doing in your lab or the clinical study you were doing. When you publish that paper, you send it to them. This paper is now published. And actually, these are people you can also list um, as potential reviewers for your papers as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, this, you know, people talk about networking. It's more than just going to a reception and, you know, talking to people and, you know, mingling. It's really building these connections and building these relationships. And, you know, there are lots of ways to do it that will help you grow, make your scholarship better. Maybe also this person gets some great ideas too. I mean, these visits are beneficial on both sides and just helps you become more embedded in this greater kind of, you know, academic enterprise that, you know, is only valuable for you as you're trying to progress. I love it. Great advice. Great advice. So the other thing I would say, um, and I'm sure this has come up on your podcast before, but kind of this work-life balance thing. So I get asked a lot about work-life balance versus COVID. How do you do it? And, you know, for me, I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I have small children and I'm a department chair and all the other things. So what I say is that a long time ago, feels like a long time ago, just when I was a system professor, um, I kind of gave up using that term because I feel that language is thought, right? And the things that we say really impact how we feel. And I thought my work is part of my life. It's not antagonistic to my life. Why do I have this hyphen? They're not competing priorities. Um, It really is part of who I am and part of my being and part of what gives my life fulfillment. And when I started thinking that way, I think more about my broad productivity. So any given day or given week, I'm trying to spend a certain amount of hours being productive. And sometimes that productivity might mean I'm doing something that's not academic and it's related to my family, my household. But when I think about productivity and that being productive too, because this is just the totality of my life, I give myself more grace, more forgiveness for these different things that we all have to do that are parts of who we are. It takes time, definitely. And I don't think that I'm a completely imbalanced person. I definitely still check email in the middle of the night and all those things that we probably shouldn't do. But I think that if we start thinking of it as productivity and whatever being productive means to me today, then you give yourself more space Mm -hmm. kind of just to think about how everything goes together. Now, someone will say, yeah, but how does that get me promoted? (laughs) So there are things that I do um, to protect my time that I think that are really key, especially for assistant professors. So I think you have to be very disciplined and systematic about your time and, you know, your calendars. So um, I always blocked out an hour every day, still do for writing and reading, 
where an hour every day, it's untouchable. No one, I'm not going to meet. I'm not, it, it doesn't matter. Like, this is my time to read and write. It's easy to let people pull on you and say, but this meeting's important. It's, it's almost never that important. Um, you can find other times for things. What is important is feeding your soul as far as your scholarship and making sure that you keep your scholarship going, certainly. If you're on this academic path, that's what you need to continue on the path. And even for me as a chair, that scholarship piece is still important to my ability to move my department forward to help my junior faculty. So I have to prioritize it still. So an hour a day where you just read and write. Then giving yourself two hours at the end of the day, that's your you know work on special projects, answer your emails. That way, if you found yourself in meetings all day, it's not that now it's 10 p.m., 11 p.m., I'm just getting to my email because you still do need your rest. That's important, that's part of your productivity. And so giving yourself time every day to do little projects, little wrap-ups you need, and to get to all your email from the day. As an assistant professor, it should also be possible to give yourself one full day a week that you don't have meetings, mm -hmm. where that day is just your you know, research day. You meet with people that work with you in your research, whether it's students or fellows or staff. Um, you, know, you do your reading, those types of things. It feels difficult. I talk to people about this all the time. I say, but there's you know, so many meeting requests. You have to find a way to stick to that. Um, give yourself that time. That's really what protecting your time means. And people move around it. The meeting can happen the next day. It's okay. Everything is going to be okay and work out that way. And I think kind of the last thing, you're taking on commitments. So especially when you're new, people want you for every committee. <laughs> you must be on this admissions committee. We need you for this. It is great that people are excited to have you there as a junior faculty member and they want your service. Um, it is very, it's wonderful and it you know, makes you feel good and you certainly have a lot to contribute to the institution. But at the same time, the way that you are able to have the biggest impact is through your success. Really. So um, what I say is take 48 hours to respond to any request, any request for committee service, even if it's like the most amazing person at your institution that you're so, you know, you look up to their career so much and it's, wow, this person emailed me, this is such an honor. Still give yourself time to process it. They will be okay. They take time, I'm sure, to respond to requests too. Have mentors that you screen and run these things by. So I have assistant professors at Hopkins and elsewhere that send me every request, no matter how big or how small, should I do this? Should I give this talk here? Should I do this service? And we talk about it. And so when you do that, one, you're getting someone else's feedback about, I think this will be a lot of time. And it's not what you've talked about excites you or brings you joy. You know, we mm. talked about service based on joy, for instance. And in addition, it's someone to help check kind of how things are building up so that you're not buried under your service, right? So having someone that's going to help you go through and look at those things is important. And what I do with my mentees is we develop criteria for saying yes or no to things that we stick to, you know, much like you would if you were working with a career coach, you know, what are your criteria? Okay, you know, will you enjoy it? Is it gonna bring you joy? These are the type of things that bring you joy. <laughs> Is this one of those types of things? That's one criteria, you know, time commitment. Okay, that's one. And really try to make decisions in a systematic and scientific way because you just have to at this stage. You can be more flexible later, even though you have more requests, but, you just have to because your success is really important. Um, you know, you wanted to be an academic for a reason and you really um, have the right and also need to embrace this opportunity to really fulfill that. So 
Dr. Bumpus, you are giving, you are empowering your junior career, junior faculty career faculty members and mentees around the country that you mentor. You are empowering them to say no. So because I see faculty members, especially early career, who they want to be the good neighbor. They want to be the good team player. And, oh, I'm allowed to say no to this. This is famous person XYZ just asked me that. I didn't know no was an option. So what you're telling me is that you are empowering junior faculty members to, again, like you said, cool your jets, take that four, eight hours, talk. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Bumpus. I appreciate the opportunity. Let me think about that. I'm going to talk with my mentor, my my mentoring team about that. And I promise to get back with you within the next hours. That kind of removes you physically from the excitement or the dread of the opportunity and then helps you, as you said, you have this fantastic checklist to be rational, thoughtful, and get advice about, is this like, for how long is this going to be? Are there resources? You know, what kind of time will it bring me joy? And, and knowing probably that there's some things that we can or should do, there's an expectation, but I love how you've kind of flipped that on its head and made sure you're, I hope early career faculty members are hearing this, that you can say no, you are not required or obligated to say yes to everything somebody throws you in. Sometimes it's it's veiled as being a great opportunity when in fact, it's not so much a great opportunity and you don't want to get hoodwinked into thinking, well, I better do it. Otherwise I'm going to be labeled as a, one exactly. of those, you know, selfish exactly. And, you know, people who are asking you, you know, said well-meaning and excited about you, they don't understand as they can't the totality of all the things you're doing, all the things that you're managing. So they're asking you this one thing that's important to them. And it sounds like, oh, well, it's just, you know, two hours a month. They don't know if you have 50 things that are two hours a month, it adds up. So that becomes kind of part of your responsibility. Your mentors can help you navigate that to really um, you know, build that time and lead with your scholarship. What I always say, you know, a couple of things. One, there are always people looking for opportunities, for talks, for service. So when you say no, there's someone else who can be asked who may really um, be able to utilize having a service opportunity, who might be really excited and be joyful about that thing. So other people are always identified. You do not need to feel like if you say no now, the whole, you know, task force can't happen. Right. So I was um, and I think also, um, along with that, as you continue to prosper, you know, there are going to be more and more opportunities that come your way and more and more opportunities to contribute in these ways and participate and be a good neighbor. So your focus on yourself, your success is not selfish in that. In academia, we're also intertwined. So your success does propel people, other people in many different ways, especially when you're now getting, you know, even more impactful potential um, service opportunities. Yeah, that's another important point, Namanje, that sometimes we maybe mistakenly believe that, well, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm never, If I say no now, I'll never be asked again. I'm going to be labeled as a troublemaker. I'm not a team player. And I'm going to have some negative repercussions, all these kind of ticker tape beliefs that we have that that are good to vet with our our mentors. But I like how you're saying, you know, we have to find some courage here to reflect on our mission, our vision, rely on the people who have been in the institution a while and 
and what feels good and going with some element of instinct. Before I forget, you said something else that was really important with your third point oh, product around productivity is I love, Namanje how you say, even as a department chair, you schedule an hour a day. So not only is, uh, is that good for you, because as a scientist, that is your obligation, that is your job is to think deeply about things and to be productive, you know, and scholarly uh, productive, but you're also setting a good example. If everyone else, your peers, your junior faculty members, your staff, see that you have established these really good, healthy academic practices and habits, and they learn that you really hold those sacred and you don't just play loosey-goosey with them, that sets up a cultural expectation. And I'm doing it for me. I expect you're doing it for you as well. So that what's important is not only for ourselves, but it's also setting examples for our trainees. So it's not only like, well, I'm just doing this for me. I kind of feel selfish and this feels awkward to me. No, it's important for you. Yes. And you're also setting a precedent for expectations of the culture in your division, your lab, your office, your clinic. And then you're helping other people coming up behind you say, no, this is how it gets done. I have to put, I have to prioritize this stuff. So kudos to you for sticking and along yeah and along those lines of you know being a department chair and doing that I want your department chair is a great resource in helping you navigate these things so you know hopefully you have a great relationship you built that you are meeting with them at least quarterly you or your division chief you are sending them you know news of your papers and your posters being accepted and we do talks keep people posted it feels like self-promotion but People want to know what you're up to and what you're doing, and they really have no other way besides you telling them. So let people know, share this good news. At our faculty meetings, we actually have um, a good news announcement section that we started so that we can all just stay abreast of what's happening. Did your yeah. student, you know, just get an award? But so give that information. But um, your department chair can tell people on your behalf that you are not able to take on a service opportunity. So sometimes it does feel politically difficult, especially as this professor to say no to something. But if you talk with your department chair about, look, these are the service things coming my way. This is my bandwidth I have. I cannot do these things. Um, hopefully they offer and volunteer to decline someone on your behalf. But if they don't, I would just ask either, do you have strategies that you would think I should use to decline this? Or would you be willing to help me with declining this? That is part of what they should be helping me navigate. So I all the time tell faculty mentees, blame it on me. Say that, you know, I am not allowing you <laughs> to do any more committees. Um, and you know that person can help. They can actually say this person is new. I protected them from service for the first year, so unfortunately they can't do it at this time. People receive that and understand. They want you to do well, and often they're just like, "Oh yeah, I forgot how new they are," or you know something right. like that. So don't be afraid to speak up. And the other thing, you know, Kim mentioned that you know new opportunities coming, and I said that too. And it's true. I tell my mentees, "Look, there's always another train coming. It's never late." Like you turn down a committee that seemed like the once in a lifetime, I guarantee you there's always another train coming. And the further you go, the more of them there are going to be. That's right. Success begets success. I love it. Oh, Namanje, super good. Those are my kind of primary things that I try to, um, to focus on and to center you know, for myself and my mentees, definitely. Well, this is, it clearly works and you are definitely an example of success. And I thank you so much for being so honest and for setting such a good example for us and for giving some real, just candid advice. And it sounds like the theme of the day is just 
empowering early career faculty members, inspiring them to be courageous and and to and to know also know that you're not alone. That there are there's just so many people who want to help you who are who are rooting for you. And um, yeah, it's all good. And it's hard, but you can do it. You just try to over time get stronger and stronger, more and more comfortable with, you know, making sure that you're shaping your career the way that's most reflective of who you are and, you know, what you, where you'd like to go. Mm. Dr. Namanje Bumpus, thank you so much. I know the audience has appreciated your wisdom today. And if you want to be on the Faculty Factory podcast, just email me at facultyfactorykim at gmail.com. Look for Dr. Bumpus and all her information on the facultyfactory.org website. I'm sure you'd be um, in really good stead if you'd email her and she would be happy to get back with you at Hopkins. And um, till the next time, we'll see you on the Faculty Factory Podcast. Bye, everybody. Bye, Namanjay. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.